Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Jamie Hale, co-founder and CEO of Ladder, which has issued over $50 billion in life insurance and raised over $100 million. But those are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. Jamie has had a recurring nightmare ever since he's become a founder, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about what that is and why. Have you seen Free Solo, the movie? Yes, yes. It's about a guy who free climbs El Capitan, which is a big monolith in a big piece of rock in Yosemite Valley. And this guy is unbelievable. Yeah, no ropes, no nothing. It's crazy. No ropes, no nothing, hundreds and thousands of feet off the ground. As you know, as a board member, board members are always sitting there saying, what can I do to help? How can I help? How can I help you get there? So here's my nightmare. My nightmare is literally hanging off this rock. There's this big overhang above me that I know the only way I can get there is by doing a really kinetic move. So like a lot of power, kind of basically leap off the rock jump and kind of grab hold of this next hold. If I don't do it, like I'm dead. Like I just fall off the face of this rock. And I'm sitting there and I'm really tense and you look up and I have all my board members just sitting there on the edge of the cliff looking over there, like hoping for me, but also just kind of watching. <laughs> like we can't do anything, but let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I hope this ends well. <laughs> So, and you just sit there and like in one side, you're like, oh my, throw me a rope, throw me something, like help me off this. And you know, you can't stay there too long because you're just going to wear yourself out. You know, you got to move. And I inevitably wake up when I'm like midair. So I never know if I actually nailed the landing or not. But when I'm in these really, you know, hard decisions, hard situations, it kind of just occurs to me and you wake up in a panic. That is what you feel like a lot of times as an entrepreneur. You're up there, you got no ropes. You know it is your rock to climb intellectually, but emotionally, like to sometimes you just it's taxing and you feel alone and it's exhilarating. It's also terrifying. Yeah. That's my recurring nightmare. How many times do you feel like your real life is actually feeling like this nightmare as a founder? Feeling is the key word, Maria. I have an incredible team. I'm not by myself. I'm not carrying this company up the mountain by myself, right? I have this incredible team, whether it's on the board or my co-founders or all the employees we have at Ladder, right? You don't do this alone. But it's interesting, as kind of the CEO founder, sometimes you do feel very alone because you're sitting in places that only you uniquely can solve some of these problems. So I think I feel it more than I should because I know I have all these people around me who are supporting me and want you know us to achieve our goals. But it definitely feels very lonely and very hard sometimes. And it feels like if you make a misstep, like you're done. Yeah. And it's kind of real sometimes, right? People do go out of business and things do happen. And the truth is, even if you're not on the journey alone, as the founder, you feel quite responsible, right? At the end of the day, it's people's lives and people's jobs that are at stake. I remember, so I, most people on the podcast who listen won't know that you were my first investment ever when I switched to the investing side at RRE. So I've seen a lot of your journey personally and you've done an incredible job. And thank you for taking a risk on me as an investor. I think as an investor, you can also feel like this, like, my gosh, I'm putting so much faith into someone else's hands. 
right? And so much responsibility. But, um, you know, it's not all up and to the right, right? It's not like every day you wake up and you're like, okay, I'm going to knock down that next hurdle and I feel better tomorrow than I did today because I made this great progress. It's a circuitous route of one of which you do fall off the rock sometimes. Thankfully, you learn it doesn't kill you. Uh, and you pick yourself up and you just go. Yeah. And it's, I've seen you through part of this journey more than I have through most people. And I, I remember when the pandemic hit, right? I think you had to make some really tough decisions about layoffs and when and how and how many and how to do them when you couldn't get people together. And I just, even though everyone's on that journey with you, like you and your founding team are really making those decisions. And if you make them wrong, you might not have a company in six months, truthfully, right? And so there is a lot of weight on your shoulders. Totally. Because you're absolutely trying to figure out what's the best for the company and how to maximize our chances of survival and put us in the best position of strength. And sometimes that means some incredibly brutal decisions that you need to make, especially if it's you know letting people go who, out of no fault of their own, they're performing incredibly well, decided to join your company and bring their talents. But because of the market context changes, we as a company need to change. That's an incredibly difficult message as a leader and a founder and of someone who's, again, you know, so many people, uh, you know, we even have 175 employees now at Ladder. Every single one of them said, listen, I'm going to quit doing what I'm doing because I believe in your mission. I believe what you're trying to do. And I think I can help you drive it forward. So as a leader, you really feel that equal level of responsibility for them. If I want to create a work environment or context where you can bring your best work, where you can help us move forward. And the last thing you want is for there to be a context change where it's like, and now, like your role doesn't doesn't exist anymore. But that is the reality of how things work, especially in startups. Because we're not these big battleship companies that have been around a hundred years, which a lot of life companies we are. They have a very hard time adapting to change. That said, you know, they can weather huge storms and not worry about it because they're these big battleships, right? And the strength of us as a startup is really seeing that market opportunity, taking advantage of it, seizing it. But you know, sometimes the seas are a little rough. <laughs> For sure. Let's go back a second to the layoffs because we're in a down market. So a lot of people are finding themselves making the tough decisions again of do they lay off staff? How deep do they cut? How do they communicate it? Talk us back through that pandemic choice for a minute of how did you choose the right number? How did you choose to communicate it? It was a very tricky moment in time. Sure. We were really blessed right now. A lot of our strength we're seeing is actually the result of some of those really hard decisions we made years ago. But I think for any entrepreneur, you hear the advice from your board, you know, cut once, cut deeper than you think you need, all those things. They are hard things to hear. There is a lot of wisdom in them, right? So if you're going to have to reduce your company, you really want to do it in a way that's been as thoughtful as possible. And you really want to honor the people that you're laying off, which means, you know, you give them good severance, give them some resources, really support them. You don't want to give them a long lead time to find the next job for insurance and health insurance, all those other things. So you want to make that decision fast. If you don't, you won't have those resources to be able to provide that both for the people who you're laying off and people who stay behind. If you don't cut deep enough, you have to do the cycle multiple times. It becomes very disruptive to the organization. So it is not a science for how deep and how hard to cut. But I believe the words of do it fast and do it a little deeper than you need is the right answer. Because there's going to be a huge shock of adrenaline to the whole organization. 
everyone's going to be mourning their friends they've lost, knowing that those people are out the door, not because of their own performance, but because of like the company was misaligned for the market that came. We didn't see the weather was coming. But I think it's also a real rallying cry for everyone who's around. They really were saying, hey, how do we reorganize what we do? How do we do it really efficiently and effectively? And let's hunker down. And these are the people for this next phase. And how, how do we get there together? It can be a real moment of also bringing the team together. And we're way stronger now that we've been through that together. And this is years ago. We had to do our layoff. And 95 plus percent of the people are still at the company today, right? Which is this incredibly high retention for Silicon Valley standards because they're bought into the mission and they're, they've seen what it's like working shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, it's also interesting that when you're on the startup journey, it's really like going through this thing together, right? It does bond you in a certain way. But one thing we've talked about over the years too is just how to keep everyone motivated for the next challenge because it kind of feels like whatever the moment in time is, there's this sense of urgency and this immediate challenge you have to get through or else the company goes under. But then like as soon as you get to the other side of that and you maybe took a moment to celebrate, probably you didn't, there's another one. And so at some point, you know, you're kind of running a marathon, but at a sprint pace, like how do you keep the right balance of keeping people motivated, but not feeling like they're always on an urgent journey? You already gave part of the answer. And that's because you know me so well. You have to take a moment to celebrate. You got to mark the moments because everything can feel like a crisis all the time. And it's not. Part of my job is to be the shock absorber, right? And really get the team and the organization focused on what's the next challenge name it, communicate it. Hey, this is our challenge. We call them epochs inside like ladder. Like, this is a new epoch and a new challenge. We got to get through it. You get through it. You got to then take a moment to celebrate because you know what? Congratulations. You've now earned the right to go work on the next challenge, right? That is really what the startup life is. You get through that first challenge. Congratulations. You got the next one in front of you, right? It's not that you get to roll downhill all of a sudden. It's always this great striving. The flip side is it's an incredible place to bring your work, right? There's always things going on. There's always hard things to do, always needing creativity. So if you really get joy from work, start to no better place for you to be there and bring your talents, your passion, your creativity. Yeah. If you like solving hard problems and you like doing it at a fast pace, which a lot of people do, myself included, it's a great place to be. So you're there telling them to take the time to celebrate and to that they did a good job. Who does that for you? Does anyone? You know, we've talked about this idea of the fact that a board is almost like a distributed boss, but as a founder, does do you ever get that? Do you get good job or or do you just not you just have to give that to yourself? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the CEO's unique role because you're right, your board is you know, I've talked about this Mary. It's a distributed boss, right? It's your boss. But it's also you got multiple of them and they all are coming to the table for the reason you want them at the table. Is sort of the coming with different perspectives. But yeah, I would say if you want to have a manager who sits there and says, hey, great job, Jamie. I see you. I know you. I'm going to really celebrate you. I'm going to help you develop. And these are the pieces of feedback you're going to do. This is the one job you're not going to get that, right? So you're going to have to go out and create that as a CEO. But what's nice is your board will welcome it if you really are honest and frank with them. You know, it's hard for every person to be fully self-aware, right? So I need you. I'm going to invite you into these processes and into these to give me feedback, to help me be better. Because I fundamentally believe I can wake up tomorrow and be better than I was today. I believe about everyone in my company. I believe about myself. But to do that, I need to get honest and frank feedback. And I got to be willing to take it and own it. 
On the flip side, if you don't love feedback, being a CEO in a way is a super easy job because you got a ton of power. People kind of want to tell you what you want to hear. So you really got to both inside your org and with your board, you know, if you do want to get feedback and get better, you got to punch through that. But the flip challenge is, Maria, there's not a lot of people who always sit there and say, hey, you know, great job. Let's celebrate. (laughs) They They do that at the IPO. I think that's, they're just saving it up. Yeah. I think I forced you to once, but no, I'm <laughs> you were great. You were always great. <laughs> I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I think though that the truth is that's probably true for a lot of people that even as a VC, right? Like there's not a lot of actual feedback. I think I put together like a survey that I sent around to the board and to founders, but it's not built in, but it's probably true for a lot of levels. So I think it's just good to keep that accountable if you're not. But to your point, if you do want to hear what you want to hear, in theory, the CEO job can be great, but then all of a sudden you get replaced, right? Because if you're not the right CEO for the right moment in time in the company, like you're hearing what you want to hear until all of a sudden you're not, right? Yeah, that's probably true too. It's tough being a founder to scale through the different stages. You really have to be signed up for it. I loved when we were five of us in the room and I loved when we were 30 of us. I loved when we were 50 of us, but man, my job is so different now that we're almost 175 now than it was when I was 25, right? And you have to really be signed up for continually changing and getting a lot of feedback and really driving that, or you got to be really signed up or handing out the keys. There's a lot of founders who are definitely in positions, you know, they're not signed up for. They kind of ended up there opposed intentionally of saying, this is where I want to be. And sometimes therefore they're forced to go to the beach. I think we like when founders can go the distance and kind of stay with the company, obviously, but it's not always for everyone. And to your point, the job does change. How do you think about that as a founder? Like, do you mentally ask yourself, like, am I the right person for the job continuously? Or like, I guess you get feedback to get yourself better. But because I've definitely seen founders who didn't make that journey well, right? And it didn't always end well. Yeah. For me as a person, yes. I definitely think about, am I the right person for this job? And do I want to be tackling these next set of challenges? Because it just doesn't disservice to everyone. If either I'm not, consciously saying, hey, what are the next set of challenges? What do we need to be really building towards and for? And do I think I have the ability to get us there, right? If I'm really starting this company to be really successful, make a big impact on society, which life insurance is a fundamentally awesome product, communities and families are better off for more of it being out there, right? That's my mission. If I'm not the right person, just like in any one of my other staff roles, it doesn't make sense to have someone who's passionate, but not actually skilled to drive to that next level of success, right? I don't promote you because of what you did. I promote you into a job because, hey, you have what I need to take it to the next level. Always very forward-looking. So I think about my job every, structurally, every six months, I try to take a half day, get away, Maria, you know, reflect a little bit and say, hey, do I have what it takes for this next role for what I think are the challenges? I think that level of intellectual honesty is super important, right? Because also it just makes sure you're refreshed for that next six months, which might be very different from the six months prior. And you mentioned the mission for a second, but you know, you've personally been a beneficiary of life insurance and seen how powerful it can be for a family. And in some ways, it probably makes it much better for you to run the company because you're so tied to the mission. But in some ways, it might make it harder, right? Because if you're not scaling like you want to, or if you're not having the impact you want, you know, you also can be your own worst critic. Do you think that it's kind of a blessing and a curse or is it more one than the other? It's interesting. I think successful founders typically have a strong inner critic, right? Because you know the opportunity, you see that mission in front of you. And if you're not really achieving it, achieving it with speed and excellence, like you're like, the market opportunity is so big. 
why are we not nailing it? Why aren't we going faster? Why aren't we going bigger? I mean, my addressable market is $766 billion a year, right? Like, I don't have 10% market share yet. We're way, way off that. But like, that's the inner critic. And that, that can be a wonderful, motivating factor. You can't let it overpower you. But it can be something that really drives forward there. Because you're so tied into the mission. Totally. But it's also totally different in a regulated space because, you know, not all growth is good growth. And if you don't have a good book of business at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how fast you grow. You can grow yourself out of business faster in insurance and probably any other product line, right? You can write a lot of bad business and just put yourself in a situation where you're just really crippled, which is also tough to manage as a founder to the board, right? Because we're all looking for growth. But you also have to temper you know, if one of your competitors is maybe growing in an unhealthy way, you need to sit there and say, listen, I thought hard about it. I think it's actually unhealthy what they're doing. And let's have the discipline to stay and run our own race opposed to trying to run their race. I remember some of these conversations. We won't name some of those conversations. Yeah, exactly. They're not easy at the time. No, it's not. It's not. It's there's a lot of room for self doubt, right? And even if you're growing incredibly well and continuing to create great product that customers love, there's a lot of pressure to do it a certain way. And quite frankly, the market also supported it, right? Like now we're in a moment where it's not growth at all costs, but for a long time, that was the pressure on founders. So I wanted to talk about your co-founding team for a second, because I think you guys have a very special co-founding team. I think you have really bring a lot to the table with each other. You're also a husband-wife team, which we'll come on to in a second, but then you have two other co-founders. But you really have a great group of diverse people that bring the right energy to each other. What advice do you have for people in terms of picking co-founders and what would you do and not do? So there is a quip that says, you know, like picking a co-founder is like picking a spouse. It's not quite, but there is some similarities. Like be thoughtful about who your co-founding team is. Laura and I are a husband-wife co-founding team, two out of the four of us. I think that brought a lot of really unique discussions about culture, about um, honesty and communication, openness and communication to the original founding DNA, right? Both Jack, who's a co-founder and our CTO, and Jeff, who is our chief business development officer and chief partnership person, you know, they were all for the founding team. We really talked about, like, we need to be able to talk about each other to each other in a really open, honest, high-integrity way where there's nothing kind of left unsaid. Because of this husband-wife team, you really had to be super intentional about that and push through that. That DNA has really carried through our organization. We have a high engagement culture with a lot of direct but kind right feedback that really drives that. But the reason we came together was a four-person founding team, which is pretty rare. It's usually two to three, was we all brought really unique but complementary skills. Right? I'm very different than Jeff and very different than Jack. And it really was about what are the unique strengths we've pulled together. And just like when you're thinking about product, what's your you know, minimum viable set? This really was our minimum viable set to really be successful as a founding team. We needed great engineering skill, great product vision, great ability to go out and strike and build great distribution partnerships. And I kind of had the unique ability to really strike the partnerships on the capital carrier kind of regulatory side. We needed all four of those to come together to really build our initial MVP. And, you know, thankfully we're successful at that. Yeah. 
Let's talk about the husband-wife dynamic for a minute. Because I, actually, when I initially diligenced, I was nervous about it. But then I felt very comfortable with the two of you. But, you know, you have kids at home, too. Are you actually ever able to, like, leave work at the door and enjoy family life? Or is it always just, you know, how do you manage those two things together? Well, I would say, first of all, we enjoy talking about business together. We always have. We were actually married when we went to business school together, which is pretty rare. So we're a little unique ducks in that we've always enjoyed talking about businesses. I think when we were dating, we were talking about the cycle time and throughput time of a coffee shop while we're on a date. Like that's not maybe what everyone does on a date, but we thought it was fun. (laughs) That's amazing. That's a little, maybe a little too much information there, Maria. But, no, I, think that, but I think that doesn't no, but, always get you a second date for the record. So, <laughs> <laughs> does for the, for the right woman. We, anyway, it's true. It's we true. made it work. We just celebrated 26 years. So, congrats. 26 years. That's amazing. I know. I know. Four kids, all doing really well. We definitely try to put some structure in our day. Uh, we typically will start the day and end the day with kind of a walk around the block. It's kind of this lollipop loop. So we kind of go up and we're half at the halfway point. We'll usually talk about family if it's in the morning on the first half of the walk and then come back and talk about work on the second half and dive into the day. And then we'll typically tie off our day with walking the loop, talking business and then transitioning off to family. It doesn't always work, you know, a startup like it it pops up at 11 o'clock at night. But what's nice is when I'm like, it's an emergency, I really got to dive out of this thing. I got to dig into this. There's a huge amount of empathy because you know, Laura has so much context or that happens to Laura. Hey, sites down, whatever. She needs to dip out. Like I have total empathy for what's going on because there's so much shared context. And our kids put up with us regardless. <laughs> I think your kids are very lucky. Uh, Laura's amazing. You're amazing. I think also something she said when we diligenced was, uh, you know, sometimes she's like, hey, I need to talk to you as my husband versus like as my boss. So like, you know, having both. And for the record, my husband and I do like talking business with each other, but I guarantee you he would not co-found a company with me. I'm very certain of that. <laughs> so I give you a lot of credit for doing it. And one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, sometimes when you have someone in the company that's growing well, but doesn't necessarily have like the kind of cookie cutter background, especially in the Valley of like these logos with these titles, sometimes there's this tension between the board wanting you to have someone with a lot of the right logos or the right background versus someone who you know has the innate talent. How do you think about having both those in your company as you scale along a journey like this? Yeah, it's um, the reason there's some pressure of the board is in general, that actually kind of tends to work, right? So there's wisdom in the generalization, but then there is the specific. If they're already in the org and they're really scaling, What's nice is you have so many specific, granular, really pieces of feedback to know they have success. And what they have success in is what I think I really need and really talking about what's next versus the boards looking at it from a very much top down kind of classical structure with a lot of like pattern matching, but with a lot less of that very granular context. I think where it comes into conflict is usually around, you know, one of two things, either their view of what you need versus your view of what you need are in conflict and aren't really well fleshed out. We talk all the time, Maria. So, you know, when we were, when we were talking about, I made a very big senior executive hire, right? I knew what I think I needed, 
And the board was looking at it saying, well, actually, I actually think you need someone a little bit different, like much more in a different bent. It really was. It was less about the person and the logos. It was more about what really needs to happen to help us go to the next level. And it was complimentary to me in a lot of ways. This viewed so many of my strengths like, oh, well, you, like you just got this. Like You're strong. I don't worry about it. But I'm like, no, no, no. But for me to do these things that only I can uniquely do and to hand these things off, it's the analogy of like Warren Buffett and, you know, he, let's pretend he's the world's fastest typist. Great. There may not be a better typist than Warren at that really one specific thing. But you know what? It still probably makes sense for him to outsource his typing to someone else so he can focus on investing because he's also pretty good at that too. Right. But only he can uniquely do that kind of investing stuff. Sometimes you have to like process that and you got to take time to and create space and create safety for your board to be able to both say those things to you and then be able to process them with you. Yeah. I think there's a lot less focus than there should be on like board dynamics and like what is the culture? How do you create transparent communication in both directions so that you get the right decisions being made, especially in some of these tough decisions or in some of the decisions around staff and that they have enough exposure to be able to see that the person you think is incredible that maybe doesn't have the logos is actually doing an incredible job and stuff like that. Um, You know, the founder journey is very complex. That's why we come on this show and talk about it, but very enjoyable, as you said. Give me the best and worst. What is the absolute worst part about being a founder? You would just never touch it again if you could. And what is the absolute best part? So I'm going to separate out being a founder versus being a CEO. Because they are different roles. How do you describe the difference? Oh, this is interesting. Okay, good. You're always a founder. Can't get taken away from you. You were there at the beginning. You helped create this thing. You had the vision. You went from zero to one. You know, everyone talks about that, but it is. You created this team to go tackle this problem. And you can be a successful founder, even if it's not a successful company, it doesn't want, like you were there and you helped create something out of nothing. That is wonderful and a fantastic journey that you should enjoy and celebrate that being a ceo or being a leader of your organization is different that's about bringing the organization what it needs today and driving it forward the founder is a point in time title that has huge implication we have great context but really being an executive and a leader is about doing the work today and driving it forward And being a CEO is about being that person who really interfaces and brings resources from the outside world into the inside world, into the organization, gets them aligned to be most effective. That's my job. My job is to bring in resources and make sure the team has the context and skills, and I got to attract them if they don't have them for us to be most successful. I think the best is, you know, I just have this memory. We're sitting in my backyard all We'd get together informally, you know, before we even started the company, kind of every morning to kind of talk about the idea. I remember us saying, like, so we all, we all want to like stop what we're doing and like jump in and do this together. And we're all like, yeah, let's go do this thing. And then you look and, you know, what our third office, we've been very successful, helped with tons of families. For me, the reward is seeing that we went from an idea to a successful business. Like that is just hugely rewarding to me and knowing we've helped a lot of families along the way i would say the things you wouldn't want to do is it's all the people stuff it's interesting it's very relational being a founder having to lay people off that's terrible i never want to do that again having made a mishire it's terrible you will do it and it just rips me up why did i think that was the right person for this role how were they so unsuccessful that that it wasn't a stick 
because that's expensive for your cost of time and money and distraction and organizational. All that side of the world would be stuff that I really would never want to do again. And I think I was way too slow at hiring my VP of people. Like I would never make that mistake again. You know, we were up a hundred people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. You need the VP of people early, much earlier than you think sometimes. But even some of that stuff like mishiring, right? Do you think it's actually avoidable? Like if you read all the blog posts out there and talk to everyone who's done it, there's a lot of advice, but you kind of sometimes I think you have to touch the burner yourself to know what mishiring means for you, right? Yeah, it will happen to you. Like as much as you want to avoid it, it will happen. It's just devastating when it does. It doesn't make it any less painful. It, it's almost like being a cook. I haven't watched this show, but my daughter's watching it, a drama about like being a chef where they're all showing off their scars part of it of being a successful chef is having scars on your hands and on your arms because you've just been in the kitchen doing the work you will make a mishire it friggin sucks and you should work as hard as possible to avoid it but it still doesn't make it any less painful sadly yeah for sure okay well we're running out on time but i will ask you two final questions in one one any advice for someone who's starting on day one today and then two, any favorite books you like related to the founder journey or just otherwise? Oh, geez. I just gave this book recommendation to a friend. I'll give it as well. Amos Tolls, A Gentleman in Moscow. Nothing to do with being a startup. Nothing to do with being a founder. It is just a great novel with beautiful language, well-written. And you need to create some space away. Read some poetry. Stu also loves that book. I Now you're going to make me read it. <laughs> oh, you have to read it. It's so good. There's many other, but I think you just need to create some time for your space and your mind to be not work, not energy, not, I mean, I don't compose Slack with the same level of, of, uh, uh, you know, pull requests are not nearly as, as artfully done. So I would say my recommendation on a book is, you know, create some time and space for yourself because it is all consuming being a founder and being a CEO. So know that signing up advice for day one founders. I would say, it's going to sound very dissonant. Listen to what people are telling you. You're going out there in the market asking for feedback in your ideas. It's really easy to sit there and everyone's like, oh, they don't get it. Right? They don't understand. Like, I got this vision. Actually, listen to all that. That is free advice. Maybe shit. But like, listen to it and really think through, should I take that or should I discard it? I would say, second thing is, absolutely go for it. It's incredibly rewarding. It's kind of like having a kid. It's like, it's great. You go this thing and it's, it can be heart-wrenching. It's your heart walking around outside of you, but there's a level of creativity and a level of effort and a level of being able to drive that just is so unique as being a founder. But also be ready. It's not a fairy tale. Everyone's vacation was always fantastic on Instagram, right? There was no flight delays. The kids were always happy. There was no food on the clothes. Everyone was great. But, you know, <laughs> when you live it, you know that's not actually the case. But yeah, the reality is very different. The reality is very different. So just be signed up for the reality. I have definitely told people being a founder is a little bit like getting your teeth kicked in every day by the market, by investors, by everyone. Like it's hard and you got to get up off the mat. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for doing this podcast for people. I think it's really cool. Thank you, Jamie, for being with us. If you want to check out more from Ladder, go to ladderlife.com. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. 
And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you are doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if Jamie's story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.